The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Anthony Curry. Later in the programme, we'll delve into what effect the looming election of a new UK Prime Minister will have on the hunt for the country's next central bank chief. We start, though, right here in New York, where it seems you can't go anywhere without seeing a rainbow flag. John Foley, our US editor, joins us here. We're going to talk about uh, corporate America and rights for lesbians, gays, transgender and bisexuals. Um, Now, obviously, we've got the Stonewall in anniversary, 50 years since the big riots after police routinely would harass uh, uh, the predominantly gay people going to the bar. Uh, And that was seen as the the beginning of the gay rights movement in the the US, at least. Um, So it's no surprise, I suppose, we've got a lot more flags out than we might normally see. But you've taken a deeper look at this and to look at what corporate America has done, both in terms of sponsorship and and just wanting to be seen to support, but also what has changed over the past few years and why they or their shareholders or society has has pushed corporate America to be more embracing, let's say, of the LGBTQ community. Right. Because if you walk outside of where we're standing now in Times Square, you see a wall of rainbows on marketing campaigns from everyone from T-Mobile to Levi's to you name it. Every company's doing it. And on one level, um, that's deeply annoying because it, 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 you know, being LGBTQ has now become, uh, uh, it just means that you're a marketing demographic. However, um, you know, I'm taking the view that actually we need to look at how far companies have come yeah. in uh, being more kind and inclusive to their LGBT employees and customers. Uh, there is a long way still to go. But as far as I'm concerned, whether they're motivated by ulterior motives and, and profit and so on, um, you know, I'd still rather they were making these gestures than the alternative. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, just listening to some of the coverage on uh, on the radio this morning, there was talk of uh, there is actually there's the regular gay pride parade where, you know, anyone can throw in a, a float, you know, corporate America's all over it. But there's also a separate one where the organisers have said, look, we don't want any uh, corporate sponsorship. We don't even want politicians turning up. So clearly, as you were saying, there is a very much a sort of delineation in some people's minds of, look, fine, we can be a, a, maybe being a, a marketing demographic is a positive outcome. We're just yet another segment of America, which is what we should be. On the other hand, let us celebrate this the way we want to, I mean, or commemorate, should I say, this the way we want to. This is a very important topic that shouldn't be taken over purely by advertising. Right. And I think that there is, um, it's also important to distinguish between the kind of visible marketing aspect to this. And that's what a lot of people in the LGBT yeah. community are slightly annoyed about is the corporatization of things like the, the pride uh, march or parade, as however you want to call it, in New York, which of course happens this weekend. Um, but then, when you actually dig beneath the surface, you look at, w- at, at what actually is changing. So, there are not many v- uh, visible LGBT leaders at big companies right. in America. There is the chief executive of Dow, a guy called Jim Fitterling. There's Tim Cook, who runs Apple. Right. Um, there really aren't very many others. The, the, the chief financial officer at Goldman Sachs was uh, an openly gay man, but he's been moved to a to a less visible role. Um, so there aren't that many role models. And also, you know, I, I dug through some of the data and um, it's still the case that in um, in America, 50 percent of people live in states where you can be fired for being uh, LGB or T. Now, that that's astounding that we have, a, given how far it seems, certainly in New York, 
or if you travel to Chicago or San Francisco or whatever, you just get the sense of, you know, it seems so inclusive. Right, and but that's because you're talking about urban elites. Yes. If you go to Arkansas, it doesn't feel quite the same. And it is still progress. So 25 years ago, um, you had only, I think, eight states that right. had uh, statewide anti-discrimination policies that covered sexual orientation and gender identity. Mm. Um, and that was about a quarter of the population. So things have improved. And I was looking back through some of the kind of corporate archives of examples of companies who have behaved horribly to their LGBT staff. And yeah. those include companies like Shell, the oil company, which yeah. um, sacked one of its employees in 1991 when his co-workers found he was gay and then retroactively changed his employment records to make it look like he wasn't right. a very good employee. Uh, Shell now is is basically a role model. Shell's very out spoken in supporting the LGBT community. Uh, Cracker Barrel, the restaurant chain, is another that at one stage said it was going to fire anyone who didn't um, adhere to normal heterosexual values. Cracker Barrel now has all the things you would want it to have. It has an LGBT alliance. It offers great uh, benefits to same-sex married couples, the same as it does to to different sex married couples. So companies have reformed. And you know, you're not the only one making that point about you know, we haven't got as far as we have. The president of the New York Federal Reserve said the very same thing earlier this week. Right. So, yeah, John Williams, who runs the New York uh, sort of branch of the, of the National uh, Central Bank, if you like, he pointed out that according to a study that was um, done in California, uh, the unemployment rate among LGBT people is twice what it is in the population at large. And for trans people, it's triple. Uh, this is obviously a problem. Like We're in, a, in an yeah. environment where we've got very low uh, levels of unemployment. So we, we tend to think that that gives um, staff a lot of power, a lot of power to make sure right. that their working conditions are appropriate for what they want and deserve. But here we see uh, another inequity in that system. And in California. Well, this, it was national a, data, but right. it, the st- study was done in California. Now, the problem with a lot of this kind of stuff, um, and I alluded to this in my column yesterday, is that it's very difficult to measure this kind of thing. These these studies are done often using telephone poles where they call people at home and say, do you identify as LGBT? And people may say yes or no. It's very different when you're in the workplace, though, because uh, employees often don't want to identify and companies yeah. don't want to ask them. So the, a big uh, struggle for corporate America at the moment is this question of how do you measure uh, both the, I, the the sexual orientation or gender identity of your staff, and how do you measure progress? Because yeah. it's not easy to do. And when you can't measure stuff, uh, it's the incentive to do anything about it diminishes somewhat. So, I mean, from a corporate perspective, though, what what, what constitutes the progress that you'd need to show? So, I think you know you want to make sure that your policies are the same regardless of who the people are, which you would hope a regular company would be able to do quite simply with its. Uh, run-of-the-mill policies. So, you know, um, the same rights for everyone, uh, same uh, advantages, same pay structure, everything like that. So there are two layers to it. There is the, are you giving everyone the same rights and uh, creating the same environment in terms of company policies? So that is simple things like, does your anti-discrimination policy cover sexual orientation and gender identity? Do you offer the same, uh, same, you know, do you recognize couples of the same gender right. in the same way that you do couples of different genders? Uh, that's all. And, and companies are getting way better at that. And there and is that actually is, is that is financially very important for just simple ma- prospect of you know, where does my health care come from? Of course. Of course it is. It's, 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 it's crucial. And companies are actually getting better at right. this. So there is an annual ranking done by the Human Rights Campaign 
that, uh, that basically scores companies on how they're doing. And it's not perfect. And, and like all organizations, it, you know, its data is in some ways flawed, but it definitely shows a trend towards more companies doing the right thing. And even in sectors like oil and gas, which have typically been very slow at adopting right. these kind of measures, they're getting better. But that's only the first layer. The other layer, uh, which is softer, if you like, and harder to measure, is, is culture. Because even when you've got the right policies in place, uh, the question is whether your LGBT staff feel as comfortable in the workplace as their straight uh, colleagues? And the answer is often no. So, so again, the Human Rights Campaign does a study more or less every year where it tries to establish how many people are in the closet, if you like, at work. And it's something like half uh, the last count because it's very difficult to make people feel that they can just talk about their personal life in the way that their straight colleagues take for granted that they can. So, so those, those are two areas on which companies can focus on Right. getting up to scratch. Now, for those companies that have uh, been more proactive, what's driving that? And, and, and we, we sort of had this discussion offline a fair bit. Is it, you've mentioned some shareholder activism over the years. Uh, we talked about, is it is it just social awareness? So yeah. society has developed at least in many parts of the country, or at least half the country from what you were saying earlier. And so obviously the employees and the executives at the firms we hope we'll see society changing and change with it. But I, yeah, I, 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 I'm a bit glass half empty on this because I think that it's it's very tempting and, and I wish it were true to say that society is just moving and so companies are moving too. Yeah. I don't actually think that is really true. I think generally... Um, you know, shareholders and customers don't really care about things that don't directly affect them as a rule. So the the shareholder channel by which shareholders can obviously push companies to do things is kind of complicated because there haven't been many shareholder motions that have targeted companies based on their LGBT policy. There have right. been some, but a lot of the time they've failed. So ExxonMobil is an example of a company that was targeted with a shareholder proposal for at least eight years in a row to uh, specify that its discrimination policy included sexual orientation and it kept saying no we're not going to do that and shareholders routinely voted with the company to stop that motion from becoming and the rationale from them that from the company was everyone should be covered by this yeah policy. they said right. which is the classic thing that companies say oh we're already covering it like we already we already tolerate no discrimination against people on grounds of sexual orientation so why should we have to spell it out Eventually, they did spell it out. That's the thing. Like in a year where the proposal did not recur, Exxon actually put the words into its yeah. policy. There's a there's a really interesting case that's happening now, which is with a Californian company called Corvell, um, which has been fighting a shareholder that wants to put a motion forward, getting the company to write a report on what risks it has incurred by not mentioning sexual orientation and gender identity in its discrimination policy. And the company has tried to turn to the stock market regulator, the SEC, and said, can you give us um, backing to not put this motion to shareholders on the grounds that it's misleading and it's irrelevant? And the SEC has come back and said, no, sorry, you have to put this motion to shareholders. So that company later this year is going to have to ask shareholders to vote on whether it should create a report on the risks of not specifying sexual orientation and gender identity in its anti-discrimination policy. Of course, that may also fail because Maybe, shareholders but it's intriguing tend not that, to vote yeah, against Compared management. to a few years, I think one of the pieces, one of the companies you mentioned in your um, article, um, was it Cracker Barrel was the one that, that tried to get and f- succeeded in getting the SEC to strike yeah. off a, a, it's a proposal 20 years ago. Yeah, the SEC and not just Cracker Barrel, other companies too have gone to the SEC and said, we don't want to put this motion to shareholders. Can you validate that decision? The SEC has said yes. Mm. Sometimes it's said yes because it's, it, the SEC will accept that actually if a company in practice 
doesn't tolerate discrimination, then substantially the job is done and it would be a waste of time putting that to shareholders. Yeah. But I guess where I'm going with this is that you can't rely on shareholders to be the ones pushing for this kind of change. That's right. And also, again, as you were saying earlier, regardless of any other factor, the ability to uh, to, to monitor and get the data for this. I mean, as you said at the beginning, you know, the, the idea that, that the LGBT people are just another marketing segment. Well, how do you how do you gauge that if you are JP Morgan or if you are um, Shell or if you are I don't know Chipotle? Yeah, and I, and that's why it really comes down for me to not what shareholders do and not even what customers do. It's two groups. It's executives who just decide that it's the right thing to do because they are the kind of person who right. thinks it's the right thing to do. I'm fine with that. It's sad that that's what it comes down to, but I think it does. It comes down to enlightened, woke executives. Yeah. It also comes down to government. You need regulation that covers this issue properly. And, yeah. I, and another thing that we're going to be watching closely is that the Supreme Court is finally going to make a decision, uh, probably, well, I don't know when it's going to, it's going to make a dec- it's going to at least opine on the question of whether um, a, a sexual orientation and gender identity are covered in the civil rights Right. Act, uh, which has been a subject that hasn't been addressed, and uh, you know, so for for now we have no federal protection. That may change depending on what the Supreme Court says. But you need a shove from above. You need two shoves from above. You need governments to do something about this, and you also need executives to push because right. shareholders and customers probably won't. Well, John, thanks for coming and discussing that. Uh, very interesting stuff. Uh, everyone, enjoy your Pride celebrations this weekend. In a couple of weeks, we'll know who the next Prime Minister of Great Britain will be. Now, whether it's Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt, one of the first things they may have to do, Brexit aside, is decide who's going to be the next Governor of the Bank of England. Mark Carney steps down next year. On the line with us from London is Swaha Patanak. Welcome, Swaha. Hi, Anthony. Thank you. Now, now you're our um, central banking guru, if I may call you that. So, um Mark Carney's made a, a, a pretty good name for himself. He's managed to uh, stand up ahead of the, the the politics of Brexit and give a pretty clear indication of what he thinks will happen with the economy. He's been talking a lot about fintech, a lot about uh, Bitcoin, blockchain. He's been taking the lead on climate risk. Uh, taking over from him is going to be, a, or following on from him is going to be a pretty tough act anyway. Um, the Conservative Party problems around Brexit make it all the more difficult, I'm assuming. So what do you think is going to happen here? Yeah, I think uh, Mark Carney has the status of a rock star central banker. There aren't too many of them around anyway to convince uh, someone else to come and follow in his big footsteps. But uh, the other problem is that Boris Johnson has a reputation of, um, let's say, straying from the script, shall we? And uh, <laughs> That's he a very doesn't... kind way of putting it. <laughs> um, well, it's a family audience. Um, let's, uh, so what might have been, um, at worst, uh, a job that's given to a safe pair of hands and at best some Somebody given somebody who takes over being a rock star, you know, central banker like uh, Mark Carney was, now suddenly becomes a bit of um, a less certain race, and you could have wild cards popping up, and Johnson could pick somebody that's not already sort of expected, or somebody who has slightly unorthodox views on Brexit, and that could be a real problem. Now, of course, we've seen um, over here in the states, we've seen how President Donald Trump has been targeting. Uh, the Fed chair for some time now, saying he's not doing a good enough job. I think the other day saying the Fed was basically a, a petulant child or, or words of that description. Do you see Boris Johnson as being a, a similar kind of individual, maybe not on Twitter, but certainly in the way he, he feels about and would approach uh, a central banker? 
I'm not sure. Um, I mean, Boris Johnson has less interventionist uh, sort of instincts, uh, shall we say, than Trump on many things and is probably a free marketeer. Having said that, it's more about what the market thinks um, in terms of credibility and reaction function. One thing that central banks are very good about are being institutions of continuity. So even if you change the central bank governor, there are other people that would need to be convinced that, uh, you know, we should all follow the central bank governor and that will take economic rationale, solid arguments, all of that. So it's not easy to turn central banks on their head. And that's certainly the case in the US where the Fed has a lot of credibility. And uh, the problem, however, in the UK is the BOE has, the Bank of England has a lot of credibility, but these are very delicate times for the UK economy. So the Bank of England governor is the figurehead. Like Carney, the next governor will be responsible for calming markets if there are any sudden, you know, rushes on sterling because people have Brexit concerns. And you want somebody who is able to reassure markets, calm the public and act quickly rather than in a sort of slightly haphazard, unpredictable manner. So if Jeremy Hunt wins uh, the leadership race, do you think the markets will react better to that in terms of what might happen with the central banker? I think the markets are probably going to react a little bit better because he's been more nuanced about how willing he is to go and embrace a hard Brexit, which would be a disorderly exit from the European Union and possibly bad for the economy. Uh, Since the European Union, the other members don't seem to be inclined to change the deal they gave Theresa May. So it may not just be because of the Bank of England. And there's, you know, no guarantee that Boris Johnson's going to pick somebody in his own mould who's a little unorthodox, shall we say. Um, But it's just the uncertainty that's still there. And if we get somebody who is uh, not as credible as the markets would like, it just makes life difficult for UK assets, which are already not having a great time for some of them. Do we have any names out already for um, people who might be up for the job? There was a story yesterday in the Financial Times which said there were up to approximately 30 candidates. So there are a lot of names. Um, So the Financial Conduct Authority boss, Andrew Bailey's in the mix. Um, The former uh, Reserve Bank of India boss, Raghuram Rajan, is in the mix, particularly since the current finance minister, Philip Hammond, had wanted somebody who's, you know, well known on the international stage and could command attention if he walked into a room of G7 uh, central bankers. So uh, there are lots of names out there. The the question is, what exactly um, is the next prime minister and finance minister looking for? And that will depend on who wins this Tory party race. Right. Now, of course, we'll find out in, I think, late July who wins. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea on Brexit is that uh, I think Johnson has said, you know, come what may, we will find a way to get out by the deadline of October the 31st that was set earlier this year. Um, When does the central bank governor um, have to be decided by or be announced by? The Treasury, which is in charge of handling that appointment, says that they will proceed um, over all, through summer and looking at applications and then make perhaps a, a more con- clear, careful consideration in autumn. They're not going anything you know, closer on dates or times other than that. Mark Carney is due to step down at the, be- sort of, uh, j- the beginning of next year, end of January. So we've got a bit of time. So there is a, a bit of time for whoever comes in to uh, consider his options. But also, I mean, given the problems that Brexit's created, both in the Conservative Party and within the broader uh, House of Commons, there is a not small chance that whoever wins this election 
um, might not be the person to choose the Bank of England governor anyway, if things go wrong on Brexit. <laughs> yes, this could be a very short-lived premiership. The, the Tory party is uh, the ruling Tory party, but is uh, ruling thanks to the support uh, of the uh, a, a tiny group of people. And it's easy to see them peeling away. So the DUP um, or one or two Tory people, uh, MPs, deputies peeling away would all be all it takes to take down the next prime minister. And there are some Tory MPs who've said they're willing to, you know, sacrifice their political career for the greater good and uh, mm. vote down the government if it's going to be a hard Brexit. Well, there you go. Well, that, that would put, of course, uh, the succession race of the Bank of England governor in, uh, well, it would not be quite as important, I suppose, as sorting out Brexit. So, um, Swaha, thanks very much for coming on the show. Uh, and I'm sure we'll be hearing about this matter more in the future. Absolutely. Thank you, Anthony. That's our show for this week. Thanks to John Foley and Swaha Patanayak for coming on. We extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Do check us out every day at breakingviews.com, subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange, on iTunes or wherever you go for your podcasts. And please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition. <laughs>